Hello and welcome to episode two of series three of the Family Law Podcast, brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. I'm Mark Ablett. We're giving Tara a well-earned rest this episode, meaning I'm in the hot seat. And I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by a friend of the pod, an all-round good person, Samara Brackley. As regular listeners will know, Samara is a star in Chambers, able to offer authoritative advice over the full range of private family law issues. I highly recommend the nutshell guide she did in series two of the podcast, which is soon to feature as a detailed article in the journal Family Law. Hello and welcome again, Samara. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm OK. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Excited to talk about our topic this evening. It's Good. one of my one of my favourite issues, actually, favourite conundrums in family <laughs> law. I love a conundrum. Um, well, mm-hmm. on that on that subject, then, listeners, Samara joins me today to discuss some something that we both think doesn't really get enough attention, and that's the role of stepchildren, really, in 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 their broadest sense, uh, in family proceedings. We'll look at financial remedy proceedings, look at the inevitable excitement that occurs when one party says they're cohabiting, but their partner has children, and look at private children proceedings, for example, where an application for a Section 8 order is made by a step-parent. So, Samara, let's kick off with financial remedy proceedings. We'll look Mm. at stepchildren. What's the status of established stepchildren in financial remedy proceedings? So it, it very much depends on whether they've been treated as a child of the family. So you're obviously aware, Mark, and listeners hopefully are aware that when you're looking at needs under Section 25, it refers us to the needs of the children or child of the family. Now, what actually is a child of the family? Um, there's a definition a bit further on in the Matrimonial Causes Act under Section 52, where it defines a child of the family as either a child of those parties or any other child who's been treated as a child of the family. So, for example, if you've got a stepchild living within that family unit and they've been treated as a child of the family, their needs are going to be taken into consideration under Section 25. Conversely, my view certainly is that if you then have half or step siblings come along in the future. So say for example, um, spouse moves on, they've got a new partner and they have a child with that new partner, but you're still dealing with the financial remedies proceedings with their previous partner or previous spouse. That baby, that new child, in my opinion, certainly is not a child of the family. Um, They're not, I don't think going to be considered, their needs are not gonna be considered under, under section 25. Um, but how does that fit though? Because just just thinking out loud, really, if you've got um, you've got a limited pot of cash, you're talking about a needs case, you're trying to define each party's needs. Let's say husband's gone off and he's had a new baby or two, um, and there are I don't know two children of the family, let's say, and he's looking at house and he's saying, well, my need is three, four bedrooms, and really, isn't it artificial to say it's not? Well, I don't know about artificial, but I think you've got to prioritise the needs of, as the, as the Act tells us to do, you've got to prioritise the needs of the children of the family. So if it's a case of there's only a certain amount in the pot, there are two or three children of the family, they're all living with, uh, stereotypically, I'm just going to say wife could be the husband, but let's use the wife for this example. Um, they're all living with the wife. As you say, the husband has started a new relationship. He's got two further children of this new relationship. His needs may well be for a three to four bedroom property, but do those needs trump the needs of the children of the family? In my view, no. 
And so the wife's needs are going to be greater because she's got the two to three children of the family living with her. So she has, to some extent, the trump card, in my opinion, when it comes to looking at needs and where the money should be going. Um, I can understand why you say it's a bit arbitrary, but some the judge has got to cut it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, no, I do agree. I suppose that the potentially more interesting thing is what happens when so husband started a new family. He's um, he's he's obviously an established relationship with a new person and that person has assets and income. So if we take that party's assets and income into account in a, in a broad sense, as we do under under 4.6 and the form mm, mm-hmm. does that does that elevate the the stepchildren somewhat in terms of the court's thinking? Or it's well, not, the, not stepchildren, but half siblings, sorry. Well, potentially, but then the court may well say you need to use some of the partner's resources in order to house those children. And I suppose that comes back to the point that I was making earlier about the fact that the children of the family essentially are the trump card. Because if you're saying, well, I'm cohabiting, I have this partner, they've got these assets, the court's going to be looking, I would have thought, at what assets the partner's got that can aid the husband's new needs because you're right they are they are needs you can't ignore new children obviously but in my view the court's got got to be looking at what the partner's got to contribute towards those needs of their new family unit over and above necessarily taking away from the needs of the children of the family who as i say i think have got to come first Mm. let's add another layer to this um the new partner also has um older children from a previous relationship they're both in the same situation that partner has therefore their own needs which they need to meet with their own resources how, how does that then balance with the court in our case saying well new partners resources become relevant to some extent mark i i i, I do struggle with this because you're right that person is then saying well look i've got my own I've got my own kids to look after. I've got my own things to sort out. But to some extent, this is one of the reasons why you and I, at least, find this topic so interesting, because there are so, because there are so many layers to it. And the way that families structure themselves nowadays is so uh, interesting. There are so many different ways that um, you can interpret the family structure. But to some extent, I think I still come back to the point that if you're cohabiting, as you say, according to paragraph 4.6 and well-rehearsed case of Grey and Grey, the court is allowed to take into account that partner's assets and look at what they've got. And you would have thought, I I assume, um, that the children, the elder children of the partner, are going to become part of the new family unit with the husband and the partner. So then does that fall under their sort of broad household assets, household income? I don't well, know. And, and household needs, because isn't this the point mm. that it, it's kind of like you can't you can't cherry pick. You can't say, well, I'll take your resources, but I'm going to ignore your needs. If you're going to have if you're going to bring the partner into the equation, you have to bring the children into or the, the partner's needs into the equation as well. Otherwise, it's, it's, well, it's unfair on the partner as much as anything else. No, I agree. I completely agree. And I think to some extent, Mark, that's why a lot of people certainly a lot of clients in my experience are reluctant to bring their partners into it because things like that then do happen. New partners become more embroiled in a divorce um, than they might wish to be. Yes, it, it actually complicates things despite the, the 
furore that usually goes with any suggestion that someone might be in a new relationship in, in France. Yes. Proceedings. <laughs> anyway, we've strayed off topic, which is completely my fault. Um, and I will bring it back to <laughs> stepchildren in a more formal sense. And we'll move on to Section 8 uh, applications, private children cases. What's the situation where uh, an application for a Section 8 order is made by a parent and let's say there are three children, one of the children isn't the applicant parents? So the first thing that you would need to do really is examine whether this person is entitled to make the application regarding the child that isn't um, biologically theirs. Um, anyone is entitled to make an application about their own child. Um, so we're talking about, uh, as you say, specifically stepchildren here, not really half uh, siblings, specifically stepchildren. Um, the first thing that really you need to do is look at whether they need permission to do that or not. Um, and the criteria are set out uh, within Section 10 of the Children Act. It's titled uh, Power of the Court to Make Section 8 Orders, um, very helpfully. And it also tells us who is entitled to make uh, an application for a child arrangements order, just pausing there, Mark. I had to look this up the other day because I was representing somebody who had applied for a child arrangements order and a specific issue order and a prohibited steps order in relation to um, a non-biological child. And it's, it's crucial that we all realise that actually section 10.5, which is where it says who's entitled to make the application, it only says a child arrangements order. So if you're applying for a prohibited steps order or a specific issue order in relation to a non-biological child, you're going to need permission. Regardless um, of any other criteria? Regardless, yeah. The, the wording very clearly says the following persons are entitled to apply for a child arrangements order. Um, so, as I say, if you are applying for a specific issue order or a PSO, you're going to need permission if it's a non-biological child. But going back to Section 10.5, um, you're not going to need permission if you were married um, and that child was treated um, as a child of the family. Um, you're not going to need permission if you were in a civil partnership uh, and that uh, child was treated as a child of the family. If you've lived with the child for a period of at least three years um, or and then there are other bits about uh, the local authority that um, I don't think we need to focus no. on for this particular podcast. But um, those who are interested in making an application where there are um, care proceedings might like to look at uh, Section 105C. Um, so the main ones there that I would have thought were going to come come into account, as I say, are whether parties were married or in a civil partnership. And if that child was child and family or if uh, the applicant has lived with the child for a period of at least three years. I should also say that the three years thing is qualified in section 1010 um, because it, it needs to be, it doesn't need to be continuous, but it needs to have begun more than five years before or ended more than three months before the making of the application, which just pausing there a minute, I think is a bit weird. Um, I'm actually I actually just trying to get my head around that. That's yeah, <laughs> it's worded, it's worded really clumsily. Um, in my mind, I think it should be continuous. Um, I don't see why it would be non-continuous unless I suppose there was a gap in the relationship where they broke up and got back together and they're trying to account for something like that. But I just thought I'd I just thought I'd point it out in case anybody listening has got a case where somebody, a child was living with their client for two and a half years at one point and then six months at another point um, within a within a five year period um, is basically what it's saying. It's funny. I mean, it's 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 arbitrary, really. So, so someone mm. 
someone who's uh, lived with a child for two years, 11 months, 28 days, they have to make an application for permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm sure that you know exactly what's coming next. What what kind of criteria do the court apply when considering this kind of uh, considering an application for permission? So where you need permission, it's worth noting on a procedural point that the court will list a separate permission hearing. You won't just go straight to the Fahudra usually. Um, the court should list a separate permission hearing. If it hasn't and you're going straight to the Fahudra, I would point out in your safeguarding interview or tell your client to point out in the safeguarding interview that uh, permission is needed and the court's going to need to list a separate hearing or it might roll them up together if they're feeling generous. Um, but when we're looking at whether somebody needs uh, permission and what criteria the court are going to look at, that's set out in section 10.9 of the Children Act and the criteria are as follows. So the first is uh, the nature of the proposed application for the section eight order, the applicant's connection with the child, any risk there might be of proposed application disrupting the child's life to such an extent that he would be harmed by it. Um, and then there's section uh, 109D, which is to do with the local authority and their future plans for the children. But again, we're not, we're not focusing on that. So there we go. The three really that you need to be thinking about in private proceedings are nature of the application, the applicant's connection to the child and any harm that might be suffered by the child. Uh, the word, word used is disrupting. So any disruption to the child's life such that the child would be caused harm by it. Um, to my mind, actually, that third criteria is more akin to any change in circumstances in the welfare checklist. Mm. It's not necessarily a negative <clears throat> or a positive change. Um, there could be a change and uh, disruption to the extent that he would be harmed by it, to my mind, reads similar to that. I mean, is there any counterweight, though, to thinking, well, uh, like you say, when you're applying the welfare checklist, you look at change of circumstances, but you look at the potential benefit, um, perhaps that's balancing the short term and the long term. Is there any balance in those permission criteria or is it just implicit? No, I... I... I, I think it's implicit, really, um, in relation to what the court's going to look at. It's literally just looking at those criteria. Um, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was looking through the commentary in the Red Book. Um, and there's a case from uh, Black LJ, as she then was, that's called Rebe, paternal grandmother, joined her as a party. And that actually makes it clear that the welfare checklist doesn't apply. Mm. You're not looking at the welfare checklist. You're not even looking at Section 1.1 of the Children Act. The child is not even the paramount consideration when you're looking at permission, which um, to those to those of us who um, spend our lives dealing with children, children's best interests, etc. And also particularly, actually, when I was listening to last week's podcast on pain and pain and how we've moved away from um, the child not being uh, best interest of the child not being the focus of of that it seems somewhat surprising to me that when I was looking over this that the child's best interests didn't need to be taken into account when you're looking at this permission yeah um, it, I, I mean, section it, 10, 9. it does seem kind of it does seem a bit strange um but that is the beast of legislation uh, mm. let's assume that uh this step parent gets permission uh, and I, I'm going to be really stereotypical here and say it's stepfather applying for permission uh, permission gets permission how does the stepfather then how does that interrelate with the the biological father of the subject child how, are there competing interests how's that balanced so there, there will be competing interests and to some extent it's going to depend on 
the relationship of that non-biological child with their biological father in any circumstance where a non-biological parent, so step-parent, is making an application in relation to a stepchild, all of those people holding parental responsibility for the stepchild have got to at least be invited to join the proceedings. Um, if they don't want to join the proceedings or they're not that bothered about whether any orders are being made, then, then so be it. But they need to at least be invited so that they can have a say in relation to what contact, if any, this step-parent should have with their stepchild or in relation to the biological parent their biological child because i guess if the if the subject child is already having regular contact with biological father as much as anything else just from a practicalities point of view the court's not going to supplant that contact to achieve stepfather contact you would have thought and so it's almost trying to find a, a window in this child's schedule that actually allows contact to take place yeah, I agree. And I think if you've got a circumstance where, for example, stepchild is already going to um, his or her uh, biological parent that they don't live with um, every other weekend, sort of that kind of typical routine that we see all the time in the family courts, it's going to be quite difficult to find some time, I would have thought, for the stepchild to be able to spend time with the step parent. What might be appropriate in those circumstances is, say, for example, the step parent really only wants to have an order such that they can spend time with that child on special occasions or that that stepchild can join in with the special occasions that they might be holding for their biological child. Something like that might be quite nice. But then I, I tend to come back to the view of well, why do you need an order? Well, I was going to say, doesn't that that comes back to nature of the application? at the mm. stage? Because yeah. surely the court's going to say, well, why bother? If yeah. it's, if it, and even even I mean, I don't know whether it's realistic. It hasn't really happened for me when I've done permission hearings, but whether there is any kind of reality checking of saying, you know, look, Mr. X, this child is already having Friday to Sunday contact with his non-resident biological father. You're not going to be able to muscle in substantially. Do you really want to do this? I, I, I doubt that kind of that early neutral evaluation really happens. Um, I've, I've seen it once, but that was actually in circumstances where a step parent didn't need permission. So it was kind of otios because we hadn't gone through the section 10.9 criteria. The court hadn't done that examination. Mm. Um, that particular parent had already got permission. So um, it, it sort of, as I say, didn't, didn't really matter and didn't really feature. And perhaps the court making those observations without needing to go through the section 10 criteria was slightly superfluous. But um, no, I, I completely agree. Um, it does come back to the applicant's uh, connection with the child, I suppose, and the proposed um, application for the, the nature of the proposed application for the Section 8 order. Um, taking, again, a, a more a, a broader approach, stepping away from sort of stepchildren, looking more at half-siblings, that kind of thing. Um, in terms of, say, there's, a, there's just a bog-standard child arrangements dispute, but the child, they separated, parents separated, I don't know, two years ago. The subject child has since formed quite a good bond with mum's partner's new children, uh, mum's partner's children, sorry. So they've got the kind of, not quite half siblings, but they've got that clear bond. And so it's bringing in sort of other children as factors. I, I, I mean, how do you think that features really in cases? Is it particularly relevant or are we just ignoring that and saying well it's part and parcel of spending time with mum my 
experience is the latter. They said it's part and parcel of spending time with mum. I've definitely had cases where, um, not my clients, because I don't think this would be my advice, but um, um, on parents on the other side, trying to fit in the arrangements for the subject children, their own children, with the arrangements for their now stepchildren. And that has gone down like a lead balloon with the court saying, you know, we're not here to talk about X and Y, we're here to talk about A and B, your actual children. And you have got to make sure that you are prioritizing the time with your children, as opposed to making your children fit in with the timetables of your new stepchildren. Um, so in my experience, yeah, it's, it's definitely the latter. It's you may have a great relationship. And to some extent, that's really wonderful that you have mum or whoever it is has worked so hard in making sure that your children have had a good transition into their new family unit. But the priority has to be the relationship between the biological the children and the biological parents. I guess it's, it's kind of the hierarchy of emotional needs, really, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Right. Well, I um, I think that's all we've got time for, um, because the way the mood I'm in today will straight off stray off into bizarre territories that will become <laughs> completely irrelevant. Um, so thank you, Samara. Thanks very much for your time today. You're very welcome. Um, we've got lots more coming your way this series. We've got our regular dose of external experts and learned pump courtians and Tara and I are always receptive to suggestions and ideas. You can find our emails are on the website. Uh, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you.